I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello everyone and welcome to the final Motorsport podcast of 2016 in association with Mercedes-Benz. Some things are made to cope with puddles and rain. Others deal with the stickiest of mud. And as for the snow, that takes a warm coat and sure footing. But when it comes to dealing with all conditions, there's only one thing that springs to mind. Mercedes-Benz Formatic, all-wheel drive performance in any condition. So whatever the weather or road throws at you, you're ready. To see the Formatic range for yourself, visit your local Mercedes-Benz retailer. I'm Ed Foster, and I'm the online editor of Motorsport Magazine. 
we have saved the best till last. And today, we've managed to persuade British Touring Car Championship boss, Alan Gow, to come in and talk to us. Alan, thank you so much for sparing some of your time. Uh, thanks for asking me. I'm, 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 I'm looking forward to it. Uh, also with me today, features editor Simon Aaron and the only professional on the team, Alan Hyde, who tries his very best to make us all sound like Terry Wogan. Um, Alan, as always, thank you very much. Uh, Alan Gow, I mentioned just then, obviously, we managed to persuade you to come in. It, it wasn't a case of obviously putting a gun to your head, but I, I put together some of the things that you do on a daily basis, and I guess you're best known for being the series director of the British Touring Car Championship. But for those that don't know, you're also the chairman of the Motorsports Association, president of the FIA Touring Car Commission, chairman of International Motorsports Limited, which is commercial arm of the MSA and organizes British Grand Prix, Wales Rally GB, committee member of the Motorsport Industry Association, board director and trustee of both the FIA Foundation and the FIA Institute, and the manager of champion Australian driver, James Courtney. And as of a few months ago, a board member of the Royal Automobile Club. Do you have a big problem with saying no? Um, <laughs> yeah, I have a big problem with saying no to ones that I actually want to do. Um, but more to the point is my wife encourages me greatly to go and do these, <laughs> do these things because I drive her mad when I'm around the house. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Um, I, today we got, we've got loads of readers' questions, um, especially about the, the BTCC. Uh, is, is it, I wouldn't say it's wrong for me, but I think lots of fans are saying this as well. It is a golden era at the moment in terms of the competitiveness, the names in there. Is that how you see it at the moment? Yes, it is. You know, we ev everyone looks back at the 90s as the golden era, and that was a golden era of, of the BTCC, and it went through a slump, and all series go through the highs and highs and lows, and we're back into the high again, you know. So um, it is another golden era that we're going through, and, and one of those eras that people will look back on fondly in 10, 20, 30 years' time. Which era do you consider that Messrs Plato and Neil belong to? Because they kind of... They can just transcend several. We worked it out earlier. They've done 44, 44 years between them. It's yeah. yeah. quite a lot. Actually, Matt belongs to those eras more because he, he started in the BTCC earlier than Jason. I think Matt was there in 91. Jason started in 97, I'll be corrected. And, and, and please, during this whole podcast, my memory on dates is, is horrible. So... Um, I'll do, probably do, get some dates and do, years. Do what I say, sometime in the early 90s, that's what I used <laughs> yeah, to use. Yeah, that'll be fine. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm lucky to get decades right, let alone years. <laughs> so so uh, Jason joined uh, later than Matt, so Matt's done more races. So he's probably been part of the BTCC uh, more, than, more than Jason. But yes, they transcend both eras, and they, and they were both there largely for the fellow times too. Now, it's obviously you started started your time in Australia. Um, what did you do over there? In what as much as I was born there. Yeah, <laughs> so but, what did, what, but, but how did you go from being born in Australia to the British Touring Car Championship? Where, how, where did the motorsports interest start and how does that all link up? Um, well, I've always been a, a, a petrol head. Uh, so in Australia, I, um, I won't go through my potted history of, of jobs, but uh, I got involved in motorsport in Australia at a very early age, uh, about 16, joined a local car club, which is how all people should do and, and started helping out at events and then um, got involved with some drivers and teams and helping them out um, and then sort of went went progressed through the through through the sport and uh, eventually becoming a partner with Peter Brock uh, who's obviously the most famous uh, Australian driver um, in his race team and his car manufacturing business so I was a partner in that um, 
and uh, and at that time, then we we as a group of of of, uh, of race team owners put together a thing called TEGA, T-E-G-A, which is a touring car entrance group, and that formed the that was a forerunner of what you see now in the Australian Supercars Championship. It put together uh, the commercial aspects and 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 the the uh, the technical regulations and everything that now has become the Australian Supercars Championship. So we put that together, um, and then. Uh, in 1989, I'd, uh, myself and Peter sold the business. Um, I'd got divorced, um, so for the first time in, in 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 a long time, I was sort of free to. I didn't have any ties. I didn't have a business. I didn't have a marriage. You know, um, so I used it as the opportunity, like most people do, or certainly like most Australians do, and that's to come over to Australia, uh, to England, and. <coughs> um, have a look around for 12 months and use this place as a bit of a springboard to go and do other things. So I came here in January 1990 um, with no plans to do anything other than the fact I had one suitcase which I thought would last me six or nine months. You need to talk around. to my wife. Hmm? <laughs> you need to talk to my wife. <laughs> one suitcase lasts a day, I think. Yeah, no, I was a, I was a light traveller. I can, I can tell you, though, that I kept on getting suitcases sent over. <laughs> oh, right, okay. Um, don't talk to my wife. But um, I, so I came here with, with with the intention of staying for about twelve months. I, I arrived here on New Year's Day, January uh, nineteen ninety, and um, um, and I'd known Andy Rouse um, because we had bought a couple of cars off him with Peter Brock team. Had bought a couple of cars off him. He'd come out to Bathurst and race for us, so I knew Andy, um, and Andy knew the business that we had in Australia with building Brock road cars. Um, HDT cars. So um, he said, come and have a talk to me. So I just went and had a talk to him and, and uh, we decided to, to do something together. So that's the start of me staying in the UK, if you like. And how, would, how did it start with setting up Toka and the British Touring Cars? Because uh, chatting to Andy Rice and then sort of ending up with the, with the British Touring, Touring Car Championship is it's not, not a small step. No, it isn't. Um, I then got involved with Andy and, and we started building some, some special edition Rouse road cars. And Andy had seen what we'd done in Australia, both of the road car business and the way we'd organised the Touring Car Championship in Australia. So I started going along to the BTCC events here and I started looking at it and thinking, you can do so much more than this, because at that stage it was run by the Motorsports Association, the RAC MSA in those days. Uh, and they were just... It was just a, a series for them and, and, and made a little bit of money for them. Um, so I looked at it and thought, we can, we can do so much better and commercialise this so much better. So um, I went along to, to, to meet a chap called Jonathan Ashman, who's a commercial manager at the MSA at that stage, and I said to him, I'd like to... Are you interested in leasing out the rights to the BTCC? And um, to be fair to him, he said... Yeah, we would be. You know, we're 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 the governing body. We're not we're not the we're not the uh, promoters. So, if someone can come to us with a better do, with a good way of, of of promoting the championship and securing our our rights, um, we'd certainly look at it. But but who are you? I mean, I <laughs> I'm just sort of a Johnny come lately on the scene, and and they wouldn't have done it with me. Um, so I then we collected a group of us together: um, David Richards, Andy Rouse. A guy called Dave Cook, um, and and Vic Lee, uh, and that that gave the credibility of going back to the MSA and saying, okay, there's four of us will form this association and this company, and we'll take it over. 
Uh, and so that's how we did it. They were comfortable then because it was w they were dealing with people that they knew. Um, and then we so we took over the uh, the, the rights to the championship going forward. Um, however, all of those people were were, um, were were competitors in the championship, so <coughs> it was very clear from day one that they couldn't have any involvement in the running of the championship. Quite clearly, they were they were all major competitors in the championship. So so whilst they were part owners of the company, they didn't have any decision-making abilities in the way the championship was conducted because obviously it was a massive conflict of interest and, and the manufacturers and other teams wouldn't have, wouldn't have put up with it. That's how it started. Amazing. What, what, what was Peter Brock like? Because he's, you know, he's such a big name in motorsport um, and uh, you know, I think he was obviously quite a great man. You must have known, known him very well, having partnered with him. Oh, I knew him incredibly well. Um, I'd known Peter for, for decades um, as a friend and... He he then um, got into a bit of a bit of financial problems and problems with General Motors or Holden. Um, so there was a bit of, as a divorce happened, and and Peter reached out to me and said, "Can you help?" Because he 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 is he is a, he's a business dyslexic. He just hasn't got a clue on how business. And quite he quite honestly he knew he he, he didn't even he wasn't even a signature to a check account because he just had no idea what he was doing. He just left it to others. Didn't even have a key to the factory. Um, so he, so I came, you know, at that stage I was doing property development, I had a car dealership and I was doing property development, so I had some time on my hands to do this. So um, uh, I went in there and, and, and sort of ran the business and, 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 and tried to get him out of the shit as much as we could, which we did successfully. And that year was the most uh, tumultuous year because it was the year that Holden withdrew all their support. So. Um, we'd lost all their support. They stopped us from buying everything. We couldn't even buy spark plugs from them. They just wanted us to go away. Um, so we went to Bathurst that year, and Bathurst that year was, was a round of the World Touring Car Championship. And uh, the Eggenberger series came down, and a few other BMWs came down, because it was part of the World Touring Car Championship. We went there with two old knackered cars that, that, that uh, one was less knackered than the other to be honest but 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 just had old bits in it we didn't have any we didn't have any parts on a saturday night after qualifying we were going around buying fan belts and and hoses and all that off other teams and exchanging them for what we call slabs of beer um because one of our one of our sponsors was a brewery so we would be so our team manager graham brown would be walking around with a, a dozen bottles of beer exchanging these for car parts that we needed to for, for the next day for brake pads and brake discs and all that stuff. I've got to tell you, it was the best form of currency you can ever get in a, in a paddock because, because if you gave them a cheque, they'd go, uh, no, thank you. But if you offer them beer, yeah, here, have what you want. So we, so we then equipped all of our cars with what we could do. And, uh, and then during that race, um, the Eggenberger Sierras just walked away with it. Um, and we came third. Um, and at the end of the race, uh, subsequent to that, th they got thrown out on a, on a technicality, cheating German bastards. And um, they got well, thrown. Were they cheating Swiss bastards? To be technically, that's correct. quite true. But they're <coughs> on the Swiss German border. Um, um, uh, so they uh, they got thrown out for an irregularity, and we got the win. And and uh, that win did so much for us, not only for the public profile, but it saved our bacon for another twelve months because of the prize money. So that prize money paid off all of our debt.
debts. Um, you know, our credit cards were full. We, we, we were absolutely brassic. Um, so that, that win came at such a good time, not only for Peter's profile, but, but financially it, it, it saved us. I've always found it, um, I didn't know Peter personally, I saw him race several times, but I've had the privilege of watching motor racing in Australia on a number of occasions, and merchandising stalls in Oz, several years after his death, you still get loads and loads of Peter Brock memorabilia in the same way as you can get Senna memorabilia in Brazil. It's a sim almost on the same sort of scale, really, isn't it? Yeah, he said, look, he, he was a, a genuine household name, and I know we use that, that, that name f freely, um, but there wouldn't be a person in Australia, I promise you, that didn't know the name Peter Brock. And, and not just because he was a racing driver, obviously he came from there, but he did all sorts of other major things, charity events, he was on all sorts of shows, he was... He was, um, he, he was, he had, the, he was probably the most, sorry, he wasn't probably, he was by far the most highest profile sportsman in, in Australia, not just motorsportsman. Super so seasons of cricket, rugby, everything. everything. He, was, he, he, was a, he, was, he was by far the highest profile individual sportsman in Australia for many years too. So, so uh, to, to work for Peter was just astounding. And, and as a guy, he is such a great bloke. You know, he had lots of faults, as we all do, um, some more than others, don't they, Alan? Um, <laughs> but as, as a guy, he was, he was undoubtedly the most naturally talented driver I've ever seen. Um, and, and if you have a look at his records, people pigeonhole him as a touring car driver, and obviously he was a great touring car driver, won nine Bathurst and three championships and everything else. But he won the Round Australia Rally, um, he he won the Australian Rallycross Championship. He uh, he won Australian Sports Car Championship. He 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 competed in open wheelers. He competed at Le Mans. He was the most rounded driver you could ever get. And it's such a shame nowadays the drivers aren't allowed to do those sorts of things that they did before. I mean, is it an added frustration for an Australian and a patron of Australian sports men and women that it is so difficult? Or seems to be. I mean, there are, there are a few Kiwis. I mean, Brendan Hartley for New Zealand's racing with Porsche at the moment. Mark Webber obviously had a great career in Formula One and subsequently with Porsche. But it does seem. I mean, a few of your guys they come over, they tinker around with Formula Four, Formula Three for a bit, realise there is a financial ceiling, and then back they go to V8 supercars. But isn't that the same with every country in the world, including the UK? You know, how, how many, how possibly, many, possibly, how many yeah. British kids go through Formula Ford and want to be a, a world champion and realise they haven't got the money and then they go back and do sports cars or touring cars or whatever? I, 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 don't, I don't subscribe to the fact that because we live on the other side of the world, it's any harder for a talented driver to, 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 to make his place in the world, you know. Uh, all the really talented Australian drivers have made it, you know, people like Mark Webber. Daniel Ricciardo, you know, Alan Jones, all that sort of stuff. The Larry Perkins. There's a whole list of names you can give. Just because we live on the opposite side of the world only means that it takes us a little bit longer to get here. But but when we get here, we face the same challenges as, as, as every other person from every other country. So I don't subscribe to the fact that we need special consideration because we come from the other side of the world. Now, uh, having said at the start that um, we mostly be talking about uh, British Touring Car Championship, do we <laughs> spend ages talking about um, lots Everybody of other else. stuff, which is great. <laughs> um, so, I want to talk a bit about the Super Touring era, and we've got quite a few questions here. It's obviously, you know, in the fans' eyes, it was such a wonderful time um, with sort of mad cars. Um, and there's one here from Jones Racing 82. 
Uh, who wants to know what your memories are of the super touring area, era, good and bad, and in hindsight, could anything have been done to ensure it lasted longer um, and more manufacturers could have stayed? Um, in hindsight, it's, it, it, the super touring era is fantastic. Everything's fantastic when there's that amount of money involved, you know, <laughs> because, <laughs> because nothing was ever a problem. You know, the cars were, fa were, were fantastic, the, the, the drivers made a lot of money, the teams made a lot of money, everyone made a lot of money in that era quite clearly couldn't last at that, that, that sort of level. My, my only regret about it is the fact that those regulations, once they got taken over by the FIA, saw the, the increase in, in costs and, and development that, that, that saw the demise of it eventually. But, you know, every, every category of um, uh, every formula in, in touring cars has a lifespan. Uh, and, and Super Touring had its lifespan. It went for ten years. Um, it, it did well, you know. But but it but it wasn't appropriate going forward because uh, the level of the level of of, of technical um, know-how needed to to design and, and and build those cars was way beyond what it should be. And and I'm a great believer in the fact that touring cars shouldn't be a technical masturbation exercise. Like they shouldn't be. The, you know, the, 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 the 40,000 people on the hill don't actually care what type of gearbox it's running, what type of engines it's running. What, they don't care about the, 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 um, the, the finite technical elements of the car. Their touring car racing is a different animal to Formula One and World Endurance and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's there because it's good, close, hard racing. Right? People don't understand what's under the bonnet and actually don't care. And, and, and that's one of the beauties of where we are at the moment, is that we've got a great set of regulations that make all the cars pretty much equal. The rest is down to the, the driver and the engineer and everyone else. And the racing is fantastic. And at the end of the day, that's all touring car racing has ever wanted to be. It's quite striking nowadays. The super tourers are a popular feature at historic meetings and the sometimes great grids of 25, 30 cars. But it's, it's, it amuses me to see people trying to make the things run on Windows 95 computers and stuff. <laughs> and all, and all, 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 of, all of the complications that, as you say, you, you, yeah, you really don't want. No, it, it, I, I feel sorry for actually the people that have bought those cars because going forward, another, you know, over the next... T I don't know how they're going to run those cars because at the moment they're living off equipment that is that is around but but another 10 or 20 years that equipment won't be usable i don't know how they run it um and i think i read the other day i think they go they're going through the same problem with formula one now that the current cars will never be able to be run in the future no, no, historically it's the because, same because the software yeah, yeah and and it's the same with these old cars um so it, you know they were great cars they you know they sounded good they handled well you know they were an incredibly impressive piece of kit but by hell they're expensive. You know, when you have manufacturers spending each about £10 million in a national championship is outrageous and understandably why it didn't last. I've got a question here from Ben Johnson about Super Touring. What, the um, Ben Johnson, the runner? <laughs> um, it's either him or I think there's a Times journalist also called Ben Johnson, so it could be either. Okay. Um, I, I'll go runner. Um, uh, but is he drug-free now? Uh, well, I don't know, but he's taken time out of his busy schedule to, uh, to ask this question. So, um, <laughs> without naming names, could Alan elaborate on the rule-bending that went on uh, during the Super Touring, super touring era? Stories like non-production cylinder heads, roofs that have been lowered, four-wheel drive body shells, etc., etc. What are the sort of the best? Well, they're the least of them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't have, they wouldn't, you know, the, uh, 
when you have when you have such amount of money and talent involved in designing and building those cars, um, you just couldn't keep up with it. That was the problem. It's um, uh, you know when you've got a company like Williams building a, a Renault touring car, you can you can uh, they're going to stretch every rule they can they can they can think of. And it's very hard for us to, to catch up with it. So there's undoubtedly, there were things going on that we weren't aware of. We subsequently are now, of course, because people become very honest once the series is finished. <laughs> but but um, they, we, we had no idea what, because, because we weren't that smart to be able to, be, to outsmart a patry head. You know, it's, so, so we were always catching up. But there were some fantastically... Um, um, uh, unique uh, uh, interpretations of the regulations, um, and I'm, I probably shouldn't actually outline e each one. You must, you must have a favourite. You must have a favourite, surely. Um, no, I mean the, the the famous one is the Alpha one, where where they homologated a set of new spoilers for the front and rear of the car, um, and and they so they homologated it and they made it standard on the amount of cars they had to make it standard on, which is 500 cars. But they were never bolted to the car. They, they came in the boot. They came in the, the boot. In the, in the you know. box of kit. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and, and what <laughs> made it even worse is they had an option to, to extend the front spoiler or, 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 or the lip front, you know, back and forward. And, of course, to, to make that adjustment, they gave you a couple of extra screws, you know. <laughs> it was all in the boot. <laughs> so it, that came to a head at... Alton Park, we and and we we threw them out. We said no, we're not accepting it. And so, um, Alpha, being very Italian, threw their hands up in the air and did what I hear nearly every weekend. That is, if you don't let us run, we'll walk away from the series. So fine. So I got the got the security guy to unpadlock the gate uh, for the paddock. Um, we opened the gates and said. Please go away. And, <laughs> and they didn't believe for a minute that we were going to do that because they were leading the championship and they were, you know, the big, the big name. And they did what every other big team does, as I said, and that is always, always threaten to leave the series. That's the most common thing everyone does. Um, and at this time, we called their bluff. We said, off you go. So on Saturday night after qualifying, their two transporters left and didn't come back that weekend. Um, and I think after that, that actually showed people that we actually we are, are actually serious about trying to make these cars as compliant as they, they should be. I mean, I, I presume that in the current era, the NGTC, the next generation touring cars, because there's, because there's a lot of commonality beneath the skin, I guess it's much easier now to keep a, keep a handle on those things. It, it, it is, um, but... It, it just means, and it's a bit like Formula One, when the, when the regulations are so tight, they look for every little thing that they can do. Um, so, so the major things we're not, we're not afraid of because we know that all the suspensions and the gearbox, but it's all the little things we need to keep on checking, aerodynamics and, and, and everything else. But, but yes, there's by no means anywhere near the amount of, of, of latitude that they have for, for cheating or bending the rules that they had before. And the other, but the other problem was, sorry, it, is, is that we weren't in control of those regulations in the super touring days. Once they got went into the hands of the FIA, then we had to rely on the FIA's interpretation of it. So whereas we could stand there at Snetterton and say, that car's wrong, um, 
the FIA interpretation would allow them to run it. Um, and that was incredibly frustrating for us because we knew, we devised the regulations, we knew that was wrong. The FIA wouldn't support us because in their interpretation of it, politically or otherwise, those regulations were right. So it was, it was, it was a very frustrating time. D never apologise about interrupting me. Um, m m most people wish they could do it on a daily basis. <laughs> so um, so I'd, uh, during this era, obviously you had Mansell come in and, and do some, some touring car races. How, how did that come about? Because um, um, what, what a coup to get in 98, Mansell coming to race, and then obviously he did the, uh, the Toka shootout as well. Um, how did that I, I can't claim total victory for it. It was, it was a combination of myself and Robert Fennell from Donington Park, uh, the promoter of Donington Park. Robert, um, we had a thing called the Toka Shootout, which is an event we had at the end of every year for a bit of a, a non-championship event. It was a great event. Um, and um, and Robert, thought, Robert saw an opportunity with Nigel having left the world championship and gone to IndyCar. He reali we realised that Nigel has never actually, had never been... Uh, um, shown himself in front of the public since becoming a world champion in the UK. He'd never performed in front of the public. Uh, so we made an approach to him uh, jointly. Uh, we made an approach to him. Uh, we got Ford on, on side because at that stage he was racing in Indy cars with uh, Ford, with Ford as an engine supplier. So they put a car up for him. And um, we had just the most enormous... Uh, um, um, a, event, you know, they had 64,000 people, it was just huge uh, at, at Donington Park and actually, if my memory serves me correct, I think that was more people than they had for the Formula 1 event um, at, at Donington. I think it probably I was at the F1 race that year and yeah. I think it probably was. I think yeah. it was, probably helped by the weather. I think the weather yeah, was the weather was rubbish for the F1 race. But, but it, was, it was just and, and Nigel did everything you'd ever expect from him uh, um, he was fantastic with it with the public Signing, did all the right things, said all the right things, had a huge shunt in the in in the thing, got carted off to hospital. He just ticked every box, you know. <laughs> and then we got on the front page of all the newspapers the next day because Nigel Mansell near death experience, and it was just ticked every box you could think of. Um, and during that ran and and during that race, of course, he got he got tipped off into the. Uh, into the bridge by TIFF, and TIFF at that stage was a Top Gear presenter, so we had every, <laughs> it was a huge box ticking exercise that, 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 that gave us everything we could have hoped for. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a question here somewhere um, on my list, I'll, I'll find it um, when I'm not actually looking for it. Um, but they ask, uh, you know, you've, you've obviously had some great names come in and, and race in the British Drawing Guard Championship. Are there any that you you haven't managed to get in that you'd love to get in, or any that you came close to that didn't didn't quite make it? Um, there probably are. I'm trying. I, if I if I could think about it for a bit longer, I, there, there probably are. Yeah. Well, we'll come back when I find the question, yeah. then, then I'll ask it again. Yeah. Um, now, did you stepped away from the um, British Touring Car Championship 2000, um, and then came back again in 2003. What what promoted the you stepping away and and why and then did did you keep in touch with it when you're yeah. when you're off and well simple um, the, the the MSA in their in their wisdom decided to our our contract with the um, BTCC Toka's contract with BTCC ended at the end of 2000 uh, and the MSA in their wisdom decided to award the contract to uh, a company called Octagon uh, and Octagon as you know they they at that stage owned the British uh, and the uh, Brands Hatch group of circuits. And also owned the uh, took over the lease at Silverstone. So they're an American organisation that came over here 
decided they were going to make a lot of money in motorsport and 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 so uh, and so took over that they approached the msa the msa um, were persuaded by them that they could do a better job of running uh, the btcc than than we could um, so they were given the um, the contract to do so so uh, it wasn't a, it wasn't our choice in hindsight it was really good timing but but uh, it wasn't our choice so they 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 took our business away from us gave it to octagon and then for the next three years i just i i, I didn't go to a race meeting um went completely cold turkey on it but i could see that the thing was just going downhill it was just it, it was it was horrible to watch so in, in about um 2002 um octagon approached me and said would you be interested in coming back and running the series for me mm. or for us and I said, I said yes on certain conditions, and certain conditions were that um, I would only run the series uh, without them meddling and run it the way I, I, I know how to run the series. Um, so I came back uh, in 2003, which then coincided with them going out of the ch uh, out of British Motorsport. They did a wholesale <coughs> exit out of British Motorsport, having having lost a lot of money. So they sold. The branch had Cooper Circus to Jonathan Palmer. They handed back the lease to Silverstone and the Grand Prix to the BRDC. Gave them a nice big check. Um, and the BARC then um, took over the rights of running the the BTCC um, with myself. So we so so that's that's how I got back into running the BTCC. And again, it's the same thing. Um, I run the business. In the only way I know how to run the business, I'm probably a one-trick pony, but I know how to run the British Touring Car Championship. So I have a great relationship with the BARC. They've got the rights from the MSA to run the uh, to run the championship. They hand over the running of the championship and the business to me. It's a hands-off deal. They don't meddle. They're fantastic. And I just get on and do do what I do. Because around that time, early 2000s, the entry dropped down to 12... 14 cars. I don't I mean, think it was that high. It was really horrible. Even, even I might have got a good spot on the grid. <laughs> it was really horrible. I remember the, the first day I came back, uh, and I came back sort of mid-season, I think it was, and the first race I came back, it was um, Donington, and I stood on the back of the grid for the first race, and there was only 11 cars in front of me. Um, and in fact, our, our uh, medical car, the, the Porsche Cayenne, sort of overshadowed the whole grid. Um, and I stood there thinking, oh, what have I done? You know, <laughs> this is, this is going to be difficult. And at that stage, we only had one hour highlights a week later um, on some ITV regions. Uh, so I think it was done by Meridian in those days. So you couldn't even see it around the whole of the UK. It was just a, so we didn't have much. We didn't have a series sponsor of any, of any note. We didn't, um, we didn't uh, have good TV coverage. We didn't have good grids. We had cars that were not really a, a formula that wasn't really popular. It was a bit of a mess. Now, it's, it's, I might have quizzed Alan a little bit on, um, on some of the stories. Um, this is Alan Hyde, obviously, for everyone who's listening. Um, so any questions you don't like, just blame him. Um, Apparently, when there are problems on track, they're discussed in, in the bus. What on earth does that mean? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, we have, um, in the bus, we have a fairly sophisticated uh, system where we can review incidents. So at the end of each race, when there's an incident to be reviewed, we pull the drivers up. Um, we have an incredibly sophisticated uh, onboard 
uh, a camera and logging system so we can play and show every movement of the car inside and, 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 and from their data. Um, so we have, an incre- we have a very good system where they can sit there, explain their, their point of view to the incident, and then we'll make the decision as to what their penalty is. That's, that's the famous come to the bus uh, routine. <laughs> Um, it's not exactly. It's not a star chamber or anything like that. It's just. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was intrigued. <laughs> yeah, but there, there are times when I don't bother playing the electronic equipment and just give bollockings. I mean that that's 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 quite a common occurrence where, where I don't I don't get involved in the in in the uh, in the technical aspects. I just see what I saw with my own eyes and give them a bollocking. But that's how you run things. And how obviously you want it to be a good show. Because otherwise, you're not going to get people through the gate. You're not going to get people watching on TV. And part of the good show is the close racing. It's the rubbing and racing, using NASCAR cliche. And the punters like a bit of rough and tumble. It's it's obvious. But at the same time, you don't want to you don't want to condone poor driving standards. So how do you decide where the line should be drawn? Um, it, it's really difficult, and you can't you can't just give a a blanket rule because everything's different. Every every sure. incident is different. Every corner is different, and all the circumstances are different. And and it's very easy for even myself and and people watching on TV to look at an incident and say, well, that's black and white. That's clear. That guy punted that guy off. But you don't know until you look back at the footage. Maybe the guy in front, Mr. Gear, or you know. Th- 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 so there's there's things that are not obvious that you have to take into consideration. But yes, we look. Rubbing is racing, and and it's it, it's uh, th- there is a line over which you know once they get go over that line, we will chuck the book out. You know, and we're pretty good at chucking the book out of them. But but uh, normally the 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 rule of the thumb is that if certainly if you take someone out of the race, we'll take you out of the race. So uh, that that's uh, and, unless there are extenuating circumstances, um, and if you spoil someone's race, we'll spoil your race too. Right, unless there are extenuating circumstances, someone's missed a, bra- missed a breaking point or whatever. But, but if it's if it's a straight punting up the uh, punted someone up the back, speared him off, we'll take action. Um, uh, so there is a line, and they and, and they know where that line is drawn. But a bit of side by side rubbing and all that sort of stuff. When you've got cars, when you've got racing as fraught as we have, and cars as closely matched as we have, that's an inevitable consequence of it. I mean, have you been concerned? I mean, there have been some quite big accidents. Well, there were some quite big accidents in the 2016 BTCC. Um, the and start line, for example, there were a couple at Snet, weren't there? I mean, were, were, are you concerned that um, driving standards towards the back of the grid do need to be improved, or, or do you think it's reasonably well reined in? Um, yeah, driving standards can always be improved, but and and without naming drivers, look, it's a. With any form of motorsport, the further down the grid you get, the more, the less experienced drivers you're going to have. So that's where incidents come from. They never come from the sharp end of the grid. Um, major incidents come from middle of the grid backwards, um, and that's usually as a result of compression and everything else. But yes, we do we do come down pretty hard on them. Um, and at the end of the day, they're, they're drivers. They don't want to have their own. Uh, uh, race compromised by anything that they do because it costs them a fortune to get it fixed. Just put them through a lot of the team, a lot of time and expense. They don't get a good race out of it, so they're not they're not trying to go and drive like prats either. So we will give them, yeah, you know, we'll give them some encouragement. And there's a lot of drivers this year. We've we've sat down with them, um, and 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 gone through the incident slowly with them and shown them what 
where you could have avoided that and everything else. So we don't just go in there and just thump the desk and it's say... It's not just bollockings. No, not at all. We, we, we've got a, such a f- sophisticated um, setup that we can show them exactly what their, their movements were and how to avoid that and everything else. Now, before we go anywhere, I must tell you about this month's offer. Uh, this is a, a special one that's particularly dear to my heart because if you go to the Gullwing restaurant in Mercedes-Benz World, you can buy one main course and you get another one absolutely free. Um, so this runs throughout January in 2017, and if you're there, you'll probably see me making the most of it. Um, you can find out a little bit more if you go to mercedes-benz.co.uk forward slash food. But do make the most of it. Um, I certainly will be. Okay, so the, the, the race circuits. We've got a, a question here, um, one from Hillary asking whether the circuits are going to change and take them to new ones, and then another one from um, Alexandru uh, Siklovan. I think it's easy for you to yeah, say. Yeah, wowee. Yeah. Um, it's, are you looking at it, the idea of a street race? So I guess there's a two-parted Okay, um, we, the circuits we race on are the circuits that can, that can actually take us, um, because it's not just good enough to have a ribbon of tarmac, um, you've got to have the infrastructure to take everything that we bring with us. You know, there's, there's, we have 3,000 competitors, you know, teams, um, uh, personnel for, for a start. You know, the infrastructure we bring along is huge. So Anglesey is a good, good example. Anglesey is a great little circuit, fantastic piece of tarmac. You could never bring our cir- circus to it because you, you wouldn't get in there for a start. You'd never have hotels. You'd never be able to get out there on a single track. It just hasn't got the infrastructure to, uh, to host us. So, we're, yes, we're always looking to, to, to go to, to venues that can, that can um, afford to take us. I'm not, I, don't, I don't mean afford in, in, in the financial terms, but... but being able to take us, but there isn't any that we don't go to. You know, we go to all the circuits at the moment that have the capacity to take us. Um, we used to go to Pembury. We outgrew them back in the early 90s. Um, we, where else? we don't go to Cadwell Park. That's too small and too narrow and not appropriate for our sort of racing. Where else don't we go to? Um, you know, all the major circuits we, we, we race at. Um, but if someone builds a new circuit or, or someone improves the circuit to the point where it has the capacity to take us and our support races, absolutely will be there. I mean, traditionally, British F3, British GTs and stuff have had the odd continental race here and there, Spa or whatever. Has that never been a, no, a temptation? No, uh, that's just a vanity exercise for the drivers. It actually does nothing for the championship. If I took a round off out of the UK and went to Spa, the drivers would love it because they get to drive around Spa. There'll be three men and a dog watching it. Um, it'll cost everyone a fortune to go and do it, and it won't actually do anything for the BTCC. It won't. Um, so I'd, and, and it'll take a round out of the UK because I wouldn't increase the amount of no. rounds. So it's that's a vanity exercise. You know, our, our popularity is built on the huge amount of spectators and support we have. Um, and the accessibility we have uh, with those spect- spectators start going away offshore. I, it does nothing for me. I have to say, it is, it is very noticeable at BTCC events, like nothing else in the UK, maybe the Grand Prix, that all the spectators are wearing team apparel. I mean, mm. sometimes they're wearing apparel from several different teams, mm. different hats and different coats and what have you. But it's, I mean, there is a real connection there, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, our, our spectator base is, is, is second to none in this country. It's, it's miles ahead of anything else. I mean, we had this last year, we had 380,000 
spectators come to our races. Uh, and that's w- when you start remembering, they're, they're, that's Premier League football numbers. Now, when you're looking at an average spectator uh, number over the weekend of 30,000 plus, at the last round at Brands Hatch it was 45,000. That's a Premier League football match. And people don't realise the amount of people that we do, that we uh, that, that follow our, our, our racing. Um, and why would I take our racing away from them? Because if I went and did a race in Belgium or something like that, who'd come over and watch it? So, no, it's a, it's a British Touring Car Championship, and that's the way it'll stay. And, and what about the the idea of a street circuit? Is that really oh, cost? I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll be there in a heartbeat, but someone has to build one and pay for it. You know, uh, and that's that's a problem we've always had in this country. Um, there's no lack of desire from from us or anyone else to race on a street circuit, but someone has to build it, and the cost of doing it is just enormous. Um, I'm I'm going to move on to to one circuit in particular. It's um, judging by this question, it's it's actually sort of health and safety wise a, com- a complete disaster. Um, and this is the circuit where Alan Hyde um, was stung three times by a wasp whilst giving podium interviews, so it's obviously lethal up there. Um, this is from Nick Hipkin, um, who always attends the British Touring Car Championship race, uh, races at Snetterton. Um, however, <laughs> sorry Nick, he says the conditions there are always uncomfortably hot for spectators in July. Can um, you imagine uh, how I, uncomfortably I, hot I, it is for <laughs> the drivers and um, everyone else? He's wondering, this is, what, this is the reason why I'm asking you, this is obviously the second part of the question, um, what chance will you get some Saturday night racing back, um, which you obviously had in the, the late 1990s um, and was great to watch, but mm. I think very expensive, is that? It was very expensive for, and, and it's increasingly expensive. We did it, um, uh, we, we started in the late 90s and, and it was very successful. The, pro- the problem you have is with the increasing the dreaded term health and safety. Um, you have to light up so many areas now. So if you've got that many spectators, you've got to light up all the car parking, all the pathways. It's not just a matter of lighting up some parts of the track. Every area where people are walking now, you have to light up. So all the camping areas, all the, all the paddock, the cost of doing that is out of control. In the early days, in the 90s, I think it cost about... Thirty thousand pounds to 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 bring in the lighting and the extra infrastructure you had to do. Now you could probably make it a hundred thousand pounds. It's well, just incredibly expensive. Plus, Netherton, the the version that you race on now is a lot longer than it was. So there'll be, there'll be more, there's yeah. more areas. There's more areas eliminated. It'll, it'll be even more expensive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but um, uh, again, it's just uh, I do it, but it, it's cost. Um, so. Um, uh, you know, the answer to that is I love night races because I'm the one that started them. So why wouldn't I like them? Um, but they are, and they are good as as a you know once a year sort of a thing. But I can't see it happening unless someone's prepared to, uh, to 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 go through the heartache of what you have to go through now to put them on because life was a lot simpler in those days. What about a, n- a nighttime street race where the lighting's already in place? There you go. Great. Who's going to pay for it? <laughs> Oh, Sounds like <laughs> Simon wants it so much, he'll pay for it. <laughs> On our huge motorsport wages. Um, now, I d- this is uh, some questions from Willem uh, Ketchy. Ketchy? Oh, sorry, I'm not doing very well today. Um, it got names that are usu- than harder than, than usual to say. Uh, what are your thoughts on the TCR series um, tied for the UK? And isn't, isn't this the future as it's spreading so fast? Um, that I think we're actually dealing with breaking news here because I saw a comment just before we started on how it's it's not a threat to the British Touring Car no, Championship. TCR, TC, uh, the TCR series are popping up around the world, but they're for a much lower formula than, than, than BTCC, a much lower level um, uh, type of car. And we've always had that. We've, uh, I don't know why people are all, all of a sudden concentrating on 
TCR. Before TCR, we used to have uh, super production and Group N, and we always had these more production-based series running around. And if someone wants to start up a, a TCR-based series in the UK, go right ahead. It, it, had, it wouldn't even appear on my radar um, because it's just another race series for smaller, lower-level cars. Um, a, a further question from Willem. Um, can I come and work for you? As long as long as you as long as you're prepared to pay pay for the street race, pay for the privilege, pay for the street race. Okay, so we got another question here. This is from Thomas Harrison Lord, a name I can pronounce. He says, "Thank you very much for rebuilding the BTCC into what it is today." He's really excited about the 2017 season, but what he wants to know is what we can expect from the BTCC in terms of regulations five years from now? And are there any particular trends that you're looking at at the moment um, that you would incorporate into this vision over the next next five years? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. We, we, we've, we've, we've put our plans already in place for the next five years. We, we, the, the current NGTC regulations have another five years to go. We've gone through the first five years. We refreshed them for uh, this year. So they've got five years to run. Um, so all the teams know what their investment is and everything else. So th- that's that's in place. Beyond the five years, I, I don't know, but but I wouldn't be inclined to go down a technical route at all. You know, and, and I think I said this earlier. This is this is not what touring cars is about. Um, you know, so you can you can say, well, you know, let, let's do some hybrids and all that stuff. That's unbelievably expensive, and it's probably not the right it's probably not the right er- arena f- to do it in. You know, Formula One and 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 WEC and all these sort of things are where you do those technical exercises. Touring car racing isn't. It's the same as they don't do it in in in, in rallycross or any of the other entertainment formulas, if you like. Um, so. Going forward, our regulations should be not dissimilar to ours. Let's forget about engine sizes and those sort. But but it should be a, a cost-effective formula that pro- that provides good close racing. That's it. Um, uh, and and technically, I can't tell you what that looks like, but it wouldn't be that far away from what we've got at the moment. Now, it's something I, you know, you've had before, but I would love to see return. I just I think there are too many vested interests and people trying to do their own thing but obviously British Touring Car Championship runs to a certain set of regulations at the moment why can't sort of world touring cars other touring car championships around the world try and find some common ground so you can have a you know the likes of a Formula Ford festival but but for touring cars I mean can you imagine well you're you're now describing exactly what happened with the super touring formula back in the 90s that is exactly what happened we had our own formula which was going really well in this country too well, and the FIA adopted it, and that's what happened. But see, once once you take once you take a set of regulations out of your own control, you've 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 lost control, obviously, and 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 we've seen what happens. Um, but but no, if you have a look at all the major touring car championships around the world, the major countries around the world that run touring car, they don't they they've never run to common formula, and and, and the idea of a one size fits all formula for around the world. It just doesn't happen. You know, Australia, they have their own unique formula. It doesn't go anywhere else. We have our own unique formula going. It doesn't go anywhere. DTM has their own unique formula. Um, all the major touring car countries in the world have their own unique formula. The lesser countries that aren't so embedded in, in, in touring car racing 
use TCR as a good example. TCR gets used in those other lesser countries that have smaller championships that don't that, that can't devise their own formula. Um, so, but I wouldn't want to see one formula for the entire world. That's a unachievable and a disaster as far as uh, losing control of the costs. How how um, I'll stick to writing about <laughs> writing about cars. I think. <laughs> how much of a boost is it? for you and the championship you've i mean you look at nascar for example most of the cars in nascar have got some everyday name on their burger chains mm. or paint suppliers or whatever but they're all household products in the uk in recent years we've had halfords and now we've got shredded wheat which mm. you know it's a sure i mean that must be to have such a yeah, you know, and, and every you know, household name three cars as well I mean, that must that, that must be a What's this shredded wheat thing? You can't take three. You can't eat three. It, it is, yeah. I mean, it's a good market, yeah. And, and my, my son did suggest that maybe some of the Giannetta Juniors should be sponsored by bite-sized shredders. <laughs> but the, um, yeah. Which is the marketing opportunity, I suspect. But um, that, that must be quite a, quite a boost to have it, companies it, like it that is. coming if in. You have, it's, it, it's good to have that, that a household name on it, but more importantly, it's what they do with it. Because, because uh, whilst it gives us a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling to have consumer you know well-known consumer brands on the side of cars it's how they leverage their involvement it's the most important thing to me so and i'm told that there'll be there'll be pictures of the race cars on the packets of shredded wheat and and the way it infiltrates into people's homes is so important to the championship so just putting a shredded wheat on the side of the car is nice um but i'm actually more interested in what they do with it too um and 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 if you talk about the sort of volumes that they do the amount of shredded wheat they sell pack with with the race car on the side of it advertising the btcc that's such an enormous fillip for our series um and of course i'd like to see other other uh, consumer brands doing it okay, and awesome. hopefully it'll encourage others to do it um we've only got sort of five ten minutes left but i'm going to try and get through some of the other questions i want to talk about the obviously the, the playstation pc game that um was so huge um there's i i've been asked to ask you about the first time BTCC went to Knock Hill and um, uh, the, some of the stuff that went on there, specifically the sort of muck on the side of the cars, and then also <laughs> a boat trip. <laughs> yeah, Knock Hill's one of it's it, it's our spa, if you like. It's our away, um, and it's produced. Yeah, the first year we went there, everyone had to have muck on the side of their on their names. Uh, um, so you had you know Mc Plato and you know Mc Menu, and everyone was dressed around it, dressed in um, in in. in uh, kilts and everything else so it was, it was quite funny um, uh, um, and it's it's sort of the day when we it's, it's a it's we go there for a few more days so we have a bit more time to do things like mucking around in boats which which is such a long story I'm not gonna no, no, <laughs> when I say we got five ten minutes that, it's very loose do, do go do go into it do no, go it, into was it. A, it was a boat trip that John Clellan organized that he thought we should all go um, out fishing one day so we went to we went to uh, I can't even name think of the name of the harbour. We we went there, got in the boat, and and he hadn't figured out the times, so we got there and sat there in the boat when the tide went out, <laughs> and and we and we just sat there in the boat. <laughs> that, that, that was our fishing trip. It was <laughs> so we didn't do that again. That's a, that's the abridged version of it, but but we do silly things like uh, going and visiting factories and and and. And uh, 
mini golf championships. It's, it's, it's quite a funny weekend away for us. I'm a big fan of Knock Hill because I was born and brought up just 20 minutes down the road. Um, you managed to get rid of the accent, all right? Yeah, yeah. just about tried. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the place. No, I lo we love Knock Hill. We, yeah. it's, it's one of the ones that everyone enjoys going to. Um, they're really friendly. They're great people to deal with. Um, and we all spend another day or two going up there and just have a bit of a break uh, doing it. So, yeah. I, d I did some amateur racing when I was sort of 18, and I, I think it took 10 races before I had a dry race. <laughs> um, so I was quite good in the wet, but um, <laughs> rubbish in the dry. <laughs> um, so I, I mentioned earlier that I really wanted to talk about uh, the, the, the Toka Touring Car Championship game. Um, this, how did this come about? Uh, and because when it was released, it was huge. You know, pe people think um, of Gran Turismo and things like that, but it was it was huge. Yeah, I mean, it, it was. was it was. Um, it, it came about by uh, Codemasters, uh, who were the developers, approaching me and, and wanted to do to do a game and, and we did the original Toka game which morphed into four other games. Um, it was huge, I think it was the third biggest selling um, driving game or racing game in those days and this is before the days of Gran Turismo and everything else. I think there was Code Ma there was a, a, a Toka, Colin McRae Rally and one other, I can't think what it was. Um, it might have been Formula One. Um, but it was, it was a huge selling game. The, the bottom line to why there isn't one now is, is if you remember back to what I said to you before about how the MSA sold uh, the rights to the championship to Octagon, um, with that went the deal with Codemasters. Um, so Octagon, uh, in, 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 their own, um, in their own special way, decided they knew better on how to go and do a... Um, uh, a, a game on the British Touring Car Championship, and have you ever seen one? No. But what the but, but, but what it did is actually end, ended our contract with Codemasters, so they couldn't continue doing it. And and there's a lot of money involved in designing and developing a, a game now. And to go and start one now, um, we couldn't have started one for those few years where the series was in a bit of a decline. We just didn't have the numbers to to justify it. And now in 2015, 16, 17, in this era, to do it, games are totally different to what they were in the old days and they're so expensive to do that there's, 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 no, there's no business case for it anymore. Uh, there would have been if we had continued on with the, with the previous platform. And never say never, I guess. No, no, no. Look, yeah. if, if, a, if, a, if a games producer came to me and said, we want to produce a game and, and, and produce a great BTCC game, I'll sign up. But the problem is they won't at the moment because they are so expensive to do. And the other thing is, is that in, in the olden days, um, the games were always designed around proper cars on proper racetracks. But now games, driving games, are, are largely cars on made-up racetracks, so they're not real racing games anymore. You know, Gran Turismo, is you can get in a car and all the racetracks you race on, hardly any of them are real. So the real aspect of the championship has been taken out of it. Now, I'd, I've been told that Mondello Park is very special to you. Is, is there any particular reason for that? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank God for that. <laughs> I thought for a second, I was like, oh, <laughs> it's not at all. <laughs> That was my biggest race win in the Northern Hemisphere. <laughs> is, is I won. I, I competed in the 24-hour race at Mondello in the 
two CVs for quite a few years. I came second once, third once, and I won the last one in, I think it was 99, uh, the last ever one they did at Mondello. Um, so, um, yeah, that's, that's why it's special to me. I um, I'll just come back to that question. I found the question, actually, now. It was from Peter Mackay, um, who was saying there's been so many high-profile drivers in the BTCC, um, whether there was anyone who you would have loved to get in the series that you didn't. Just thought I'd throw that in once more, because we've obviously given you so much chance to think about it, because you haven't been busy answering other questions yeah, at all. Uh, um, <laughs> I would have loved to have got drivers over to do to do guest races. Um uh, I would have loved to have Peter Brock come do uh, a guest race. I mean, he he did a, he did the super he did. We started a series in in Australia for the super touring cars um, in the nineties, and he raced uh, in that. And I would have loved to have come and done, done a couple of races in in, in the UK. Um, um, there's there's all there's all sorts of other household names that you'd like to have got in Damon Hill and all this sort of stuff. I would have loved those guys. To come and do a race at the end of their career or whatever, um, a bit like what Nigel did. Um, but as far as touring car drivers, no, we've we've had we have we have great drivers in our series, both now and and in the past. There's no one that I'm really missing that, that I think should have done our series. Uh, Jensen Button's not very busy anymore. So. No, I think Jensen might be a little bit too expensive. Um, <laughs> but but but. Um, yeah, Ed, look, Ed, someone like that is great. You know, what we did with 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 Nigel was fantastic, and I'm not suggesting everyone comes and puts themselves in the hospital as a result, result of it. But 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 to have those sort of guys come and and do a swan song event, a bit of a fun event, well, I'd love to do that. Um, and and uh, if any drivers out there of that sort of calibre want to come and have a drive, call me and I'll 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 make it happen for you. And, and Jensen Button, there are some. There are there are some Honda teams involved. Absolutely, and I know that I know that they have been talking to him, um, but I think uh, at, at the moment it's not on his on his radar. But um, yeah, it's it's such a shame that that Formula One drivers we we, they, we don't we, we see them only in open wheelers. Uh, we see them do Formula One, and then they disappear. Sometimes I'll go and do a couple of world endurance races, but that's it. They just sort of disappear off the scene. And it would be so good if they could do what they used to do in the old days, and that is do some touring car races or some other fun events, rallycross or whatever. I thought it was great to see Grosjean the other day doing a nice racing. Yeah, um, yeah. I saw you, a good punch-up at the end yeah, of the race too. Yeah, that was fantastic. No one can remember the fact he won. They can only remember <laughs> the fact there was a punch-up between... Olivier, uh, Olivier Pan is age, age 50 chasing, chasing Patrick Tombe's yeah. son around. Yeah, it's excellent. Looked like, it looked like a touring car race to me. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, those sort of things. I, don't, I, I, wish, I wish more drivers of, those, of that calibre would do some touring car races. Well, for all of those listening, um, you know who to call so, uh, to make it happen. Um, Anna, thank you so much Pleasure. for coming and joining us for so long. Extremely kind. Simon, thank you very much. Pleasure. And Alan, behind the camera, uh, thank you very much. Um, a very happy Christmas to everyone and a happy new year too. We'll see you all next year for loads more motorsport podcasts. See you all then. Bye-bye for now. Some things are made to cope with puddles and rain. Others deal with the stickiest of mud. And as for the snow, that takes a warm coat and sure footing. But when it comes to dealing with all conditions, there's only one thing that springs to mind. Mercedes-Benz Formatic, all-wheel drive performance in any condition. So whatever the weather or road throws at you, 
you're ready. To see the full Matic range for yourself, visit your local Mercedes-Benz retailer.